And recording is in progress. Another episode of the Square and Compass podcast, this time with Professor Shannon Grimes. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Cameron. So you are the uh, professor and department head uh, of religious and ethical studies at Meredith College? That's right. We're a women's college in Raleigh, North Carolina. I have always wanted to, um, I just started traveling again now that I uh, am fully vaccinated and, you know, I'm able to travel and uh, I've yet to be to North Carolina, but I definitely want to go there because I've, I've got a lot of Masonic friends there and I hear it's a beautiful, a beautiful state and a, a great place to visit. So it's on my list of places to go. Well, good. If you ever come to Raleigh, you'll have to look me up. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I brought you on on the podcast um, because, you know, your uh, research areas, your areas of expertise have to do with, um, you know, ancient history, Egypt, Rome, Greece, um, and the, as it says in your, your profile, I'll leave a link to it in the podcast, right, uh, pondering deep questions about the meaning, values, and purpose uh, that manifest across different cultures and time periods. And one time period that Freemasons love to talk about is ancient Egypt, um, all the way dating back to uh, the original pyramids. You know, if we trace our origins of the original stonemasons, you know, the, the pyramids would probably be the earliest example, perhaps, of stonemasonry in action in such a large form. Obviously, uh, Jerusalem, King Solomon's Temple, then later on, that's another time period we talk a lot about in Freemasonry. And it's just great to have somebody with your academic background and expertise uh, to kind of talk about these things and provide a different perspective for us. But before I get too far into the Masonic aspect of it, from your, what is it that first drew you and made you interested in these time periods? Um, and, you know, why is it you think, what is it about those time periods that you think may still resonate today and, and is of value to your students and also to the, the general public? Because you do also do talks and, and lectures for the general public as well as your students. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's a really good question and an interesting question. So I guess what it's, I think it's just interesting how like you land on a specialty, you feel yourself drawn to a certain time period or a certain profession. And it's just, I think it's something in your soul that is, you know, that goes there, that wants to go there. That's certainly been the case with me and the Greco-Roman world. Um, I guess goddesses, I would say, are what drew me in. Uh, from a very early age, I was interested in goddesses and I read a lot of Greek mythology. And I really loved Artemis, the goddess of the moon. And I would, I would say, like, I wish I could pray to Artemis. And then later, when I got to be a teenager, I discovered, well, like, you actually can't. There's a whole pagan movement, a whole goddess revival going on. This was in the 1980s. And so um, that was very much a part of my background. So goddesses drew me into the Greco-Roman period. And I haven't left. I've been there since I was about seven or eight years old, I think, uh, kind of immersed in that world or wanting to study that world. Um, as far as what value I think it has now, there's so much, and I can speak more generally about that. Um, the Roman period, certainly, um, and 
the, uh, the rise of Christianity in that period certainly has a lot of lessons for us in, uh, in empire, right? <laughs> what, it, what it means to, to create empire and what that does to other people, um, how, how certain voices get marginalized, left out of conversations, etc. cetera. Um, I'm also really drawn to religion and science in that period because they were very closely intertwined. So religion, philosophy, and science were really uh, part of the same thing. Um, religion, popular religion was not necessarily involved with science, but certainly the philosophical, more philosophical aspects of religion. So I'm really drawn to that too. And there's a, an appreciation for the natural world that you find in these religions and philosophies um, that I think we can learn a lot from today in this time of environmental crisis. You know, it's interesting you're talking about um, kind of uh, not really, you know, necessarily knowing for sure what it is about um, that time period or, or, or Greco-Roman history. It's just one of those things that for whatever reason, you know, you, you find yourself attracted to or find yourself attracted to. You know, I kind of feel the same way about Freemasonry. It's one of those things I can tell you what it is I like about it now, but why it is I like those things. You know, it's it's such a, a personal thing. It's kind of like music. It just, it's very hard to explain exactly what it is you like about a song or a movie or anything. It's just some things speak to 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 you very strongly uh, for whatever reason, right? In your case, yeah. it's that time period and the goddesses and Artemis and things like that, which is very cool. That time, one thing uh, I think might be interesting to talk with you about and it came to mind when you mentioned early Christianity um, you know there's a, a a bit of a debate right now in Freemasonry about the use of the word uh, occult um, mm. a lot of there are certain Masons who very much shy away from it um, because they feel it has too many negative connotations of popular culture and very much, uh, you know, sacrificing goats or whatever it might be. Whereas there's a lot of other Masons now who are trying to, in a sense, reclaim the word occult because in their mind, or what they point out is, you know, the word occult really just means hidden, which in a certain extent, Masonic Freemasonry is not hidden, but many of our rituals and, uh, secrets are meant to be hidden um and that i mean from my understanding this term occult and i'm sure i'm incorrect so feel free to correct me is is a latin word it does just mean hidden um which means you know early christianity was uh, occult and that you know the negative connotations are something that society has put onto the word but is not necessarily relevant and we shouldn't be shying away from the more occult aspects of the craft so there's a, a debate about this word and using, so in esoteric scholarship, and I'm not, I'm hesitant to jump in because I have not uh, read up a lot on this debate um, on why people prefer to use the word esoteric, for example, um, nowadays versus the occult. But I personally really like the word occult and I use, I use that term um, often. It does mean hidden and certainly applies to things like Freemasonry, where you have teachings that you're not supposed to talk about. 
um, early Christianity had to keep things secret because it was dangerous, right? To, to talk about it freely, they could get uh, arrested, thrown to the lions or, you know, uh, et cetera. But also ancient mystery religions were very much in the spirit of Freemasonry in that you weren't allowed to talk about the things you experienced. Um, the Eleusinian mysteries, for example, of ancient Greece, these are mysteries of the goddess Demeter and her daughter Persephone who goes into the underworld. And everything that you experienced in those mysteries, it was very popular, it lasted for thousands of years, um, you weren't allowed to talk about. It. And if you talked about it, you could, you would be exiled or even executed um, as a punishment. So there's something about keep silent, right? That admonition to keep silence that you see in a lot of occult traditions include or esoteric traditions, including Freemasonry, I believe. Um, there's something important to that. There's a power in, in letting that knowledge simmer within yourself. Um, so I don't know that Christianity, they, they had to keep things secret for a different reason. Um, it was, it was out of necessity because their lives were in danger, right? As opposed to it being a religious teaching. In fact, their religious teachings were the opposite. Go forth and preach, right? Very different than the mystery religions from the ancient world where they, you know, uh, they taught the importance of secrecy. The, the, um, that teaching, um, the importance of, of secrecy, where do you think, um, that importance uh, uh, derived from. I mean, I, in, from my perspective, the, the, the Masonic perspective that, that I've always attributed to the benefits of, of the secrecy aspect of it is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a way to, you know, properly identify other, other members of the craft. It's, it's the close equivalent to like, it's, you know, back in the day, of stonemasons, it was about protecting trade secrets mm -hmm. as a, a, a guild. Now it's more, you know, if I meet somebody on the street and they're wearing, say, the square encompasses as a pin, um, and you know, I, I, I have ways of ensuring that they are a Freemason, and it creates a connection to them immediately. Um, so was that part of it, or was it more a philosophical idea of, as you said, you know, keep letting those ideas and teachings simmer? and not spreading them to the world. Uh, I guess just wh what was the value placed on secrecy uh, and keeping things hidden? I can't say for sure because we don't know very much about the ancient mystery religions because they were secret. I mean, we have evident, you know, archeological evidence and we have some literary evidence for things that went on, but it's illusions and um, we don't have a full picture. But my, my idea about this, Think of it like a spoiler alert, right? When you, um, you're waiting for the final episode of whatever show you're watching to come on and you see all the, there's uh, news stories coming out about it and you don't want to read them because you don't want the experience to be ruined. First of all, you don't want to know the ending. But I think that more to the point is that a lot of religious experience is inexpressible, really. I mean, when we try to put it into words, it's grasping, it's putting it into ideas, it's putting it into boxes, this experience that's really ineffable. And a lot of the mystics talk about this ineffability of, of the, the religious experience or these close uh, 
personal encounters with the divine. You can't, once you put it into words, you, you capture it. It's like putting it into a box. Your ideas are like a box. Um, and so there's something about maybe not saying it. So to make sure that your description of what happens, maybe I experience it differently. You know, maybe it means something different. It hits me differently. So anytime we try to explain what we went through, we're, we're putting it into our own perspectival framework, you know? And so the secrecy then kind of ensures that that's left open, right? And, so we don't have any preconceived notions. And it, I think it's a really good point um, for a, a religious experiences or just, you know, a, a spiritual or just important experiences in general. I mean, I think we've all experienced at some point or another trying to explain the, you know, trying to explain something that is of great importance to us or that matters to us and just not being able to find the right words. Because no matter what words you do, it seems they're not adequate and they, they do limit what you're trying to, to express, you know, which is, I guess, one of the great ironies of language, right? How often it limits what we're actually trying to communicate. Yes, it both conceals and reveals, you know, meaning. Now, I do want to go back to, to what you talked about earlier, the connections or the, the linkages between religion and science in the ancient world. Um, and it, even perhaps spirituality and, and science. I mean, Freemasons place a lot of emphasis on geometric principles, um, you know, considering the order you find, for example, in the um, Pythagorean theorem, considering things like that to be, uh, you know, a, a, a good allegory for moral conduct and a moral type of universe. It seems that that is probably the one idea that the Freemasons have that was shared by the ancients, this idea of being able to use math and science and geometry as a way to understand the world, not just scientifically, but in a moral and spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. So from the pre-Socratics, so I mean, we could talk about ancient Egyptian science. I'm not as well versed in that, but certainly you see a, a sacred um, aspect to number. I'm thinking of uh, Seshat, for example, uh, the Egyptian goddess who is the wife of Thoth, um, at least in some traditions, who was the goddess of measurement. And she, she was the one invoked who measured the exact uh, length and width of the temple, you know, ensured that everything was its perfect fit. And that sense of getting something just, just right, mathematically perfect and beautiful and harmonious um, was part of ancient Egyptian religion for a long time. Again, my own research, I, I don't go back that far into ancient Egypt. I'm mostly Greco-Roman period. Um, but certainly with the pre-Socratics, which um, you could call the beginnings of Western science, right? In the in the Western tradition, um, they were looking for, well, some of them had more atheistic outlooks, I guess, but it was really a way to explain um, the divine reason. What is the mind of God? And studying the, the cycles of nature, studying, um, studying geometry, studying astronomy, studying biology, all of this was a way to know the mind of God and a path to God, the divine, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and so these things were intertwined and that of course was broken in the modern period, you know, with the enlightenment, um, with separation of religion and science. And uh, not that I'm advocating that the church should dictate, you know, how we think, right? Because you see people get into trouble like that. Like if you contradict church teachings and moving into a later time period, uh, you could get into trouble for that. And certainly we don't want that. But again, there's something about um, seeing the natural order of things and learning to understand the natural order and how things are composed that can lead to divine insights and to lead you closer to God, I think is a really, really cool idea. And um, in the, the Greco-Roman period, um, you know, you did seem to see this, uh, from my limited understanding, like a, a, a great expansion in, in, um, learning and, and reasoning and even though the methods were different perhaps than what we have now uh, currently or what we understand now as modern science there's certainly at least a, a, an attempt to rationally explain explain the world um mm -hmm. what would you what are some of the reasons you would say that you'd attribute this to did it have to do with for example just the way the, the Roman Empire's expansion and then bringing different cultures in together and, and allowing for, for travel more and, and ideas to spread? Was it, um, I guess just, yeah, what, what were some of the causes of this and, and how does it kind of echo through to today? You know, just on a side note, one interview I did recently, actually I guess it was last year, but I'm having him back on, was with uh, a scientist from NASA and he is, uh, one of the chief research scientists for the Euclid space mission. Wow. So we talked to him about, you know, why are you naming your, your 2021 um, space mission after, you know, Euclid, the father of geometry, lived, uh, I, I used to know the date, you would know it better than I did, you know, lived 2000 and some odd years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. What did he say? Uh, he, I'll put a link up on the description. You know, he was saying that um, the satellite, uh, its entire basis of research for the cosmos is geometric, is using geometry. It's studying, um, it's using geometry to study the shape and expansion of the universe. And so he said, best person to name it after would be, you know, the father of geometry. Um, and then he talked about a lot of stuff I'm not smart enough to understand, like the mirrors and refracted light and dark matter and all that. But the basic principle was, you know, the, the basic geometric principles that Euclid first either discovered or, you know, uh, consolidated or proved um, are still being used in, you know, modern applications with billion dollar technology. It's really cool. So, I mean, I think that people universally, you find this impetus in people from ancient times, um, tribal societies, great civilizations, you know, all across the board, you find this need or desire to discover, to explain the world around you, you know, and religion helps, uh, you know, is one way of doing that. Some of the earliest forms of religion, for example, you know, uh, the gods were personifications of natural forces. It's a way of trying to understand and appease or, you know, perhaps have some kind of control or relationship with the natural world. 
So I think that's part of the impetus and it just gets um, more refined over time. Certainly, as you mentioned, through increased contact with other cultures, um, Greek astronomy, for example, they didn't, they, theirs weren't as sophisticated. They learned a lot of that from the uh, Persians through the Persian wars and through contact there. So they got a lot of Babylonian science, uh, mathematics and um, astronomy from them. Egyptians um, too weren't as sophisticated astronomically speak, like with their science of astronomy that comes from other cultures too. So the more uh, cultural interaction you have and the more you can share these ideas, the more refined the science gets. And what stands out for me, at least in the Greco-Roman period is the importance that was placed upon mathematics and on astronomy. Astronomy was considered the queen of sciences and geometry, of course, extremely important as well. And the two went hand in hand, mathematics and astronomy, you know, um, went together. But mathematics number is the closest we have to a universal language. And I think what we see in some of the philosophical movements, certainly Neoplatonism of that period, is a desire to come up with a universal philosophy because the more, the more agreement that you have, the more likely it is true, right? Um, so I think, anyway, it's um, mathematics is really, the universality I think is key there. You know, it's interesting you bring that up um, and, and the word universe, you know, uh, a couple of days from now, I have an interview with um, a professor who's on the Galileo mission with Dr. Uh, Avi Lowe, but she is, um, the purpose of the Galileo, Galileo mission is to look for signs of extraterrestrial um, technological signatures um, through, uh, through Harvard. But, you know, it, all the kind of evidence you see points to this idea that if, or, you know, experts I read, math is, it might be the universal language on earth, but also, any type of contact we have out there in the universe, if it ever happens, it would be mathematic as well. You know, it's, math seems to be the one common, hopefully the, the one common thing we have to communicate and understand, not just other cultures on this earth, but who knows, maybe one day out in the, the stars. The astronomy, you know, I, something I find really fascinating, just, you know, uh, I can't remember the story now, but the ability, for example, of, I believe it was a, a Greek um, scientist to, you know, measure the curvature of the earth using the sun and shadows and, and understand, you know, people guessing at this shape of the earth and making predictions, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. What was it you think about astronomy that was so important in ancient culture? And, and why is it that they, they were so focused on that and made such leaps in that area, you know, calculating the size of the earth with a stick and a, a shadow type of thing? Right. So I can't speak to the stick and the shadow example, but I mean, the cosmos is amazing. Don't we still have a sense of great wonder when we look up at a starry sky and imagine seeing the sky back then when there's no light pollution you know if you've ever seen the sky from a remote area like the desert for example the wow the stars are amazing and to be able to recognize patterns in the sky and recurring patterns more than that so this part of um, again the human impetus to figure out the world around you and to try to make sense of you know what you're seeing so in early 
religious examples, I can speak more to that as a religion scholar, but um, a lot of it was with these recurring patterns is how does this affect life on earth? So are these lucky, lucky patterns that we're seeing? Are they unlucky days? And so early astronomy was filled with that. These are auspicious days or inauspicious days or times of year uh, for certain things. And so that's where a lot of the science went. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, they didn't separate, how do I say, they had a more holistic view just of, of everything. So to look at the sky, it wasn't just these objects in the sky, it was automatically seen as connected to you. And so astrology, right? Astrology and astronomy were the same thing. They were entirely interconnected. They weren't seen as two separate things. Um, to study the stars is to also study the effect of the, the heavens on, on human nature and how you reincarnate into this world. They believe that you, in Plato, for example, talked about in the Timaeus that we come from stars. Um, and later Platonists talked about how we, as we travel through the cosmic structure, so you, you, the seven um, planets, right? You can imagine them as seven layers, kind of concentric circles. I'm sure you've seen images of that. Um, and so our soul travels from the fixed stars in the outer heavens through these cosmic spheres and it picks up virtues and vices from each planet as it comes down to be embodied in this earth. And so those are the particular characteristics we have based on whether those planets were auspicious or inauspicious or how much emphasis they had on those days, uh, on those, on the day that we were born is what I mean. So anyway, it's, um, it's not just about the stars, it's, it's always connected to human life. And what does this mean for us? How do we live now that we know this information? How, how do we see this impacting our lives? How do we understand our relationship with the stars? So um, anyway, science was, was often, I wouldn't say in every case that way, but often very holistic. And what are some of the the uh, potential um, uh, benefits. I mean, certainly there are, there can be some negatives to which, with you know uh, perhaps too much overlap between science and spirituality. But I mean, as you talk about, or you know, as mentioned in your your biography, right? Um, when we're when we're exploring these deep questions about meaning, values, and, and purpose in our lives, um, you know, it does seem that there may be some value in um, combining or considering both the spiritual and scientific sides of it and not necessarily so um, rigidly separating them. Uh, I guess in, based on your research and your studies, um, what would you say were some of the benefits to perhaps even in, in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman cultures, um, this, this um, kind of combination or not, not being so quick to divide spirituality and science and and what do you think in modern times perhaps could be gained by by not having such a a rigid uh, differentiation hmm. I think that well environmentally speaking I think that if we had a, a stronger sense of of the natural world as something sacred and even if that's you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to um, involve a belief in God or a higher power, but just that the idea that this took billions of years to form and there should be some reverence for this, 
process and the the beauty and perfection, uh, perfection, <laughs> but the order of it all. Nature's not perfect. We're not perfect, but that's part of it too, you know. But um, just some reverence for where this comes from. So that's in the modern period. I think that's what's missing, or that's that's something from the ancient world that could certainly be a value here. I think when we don't revere um, the natural world in that way, it it can lead to more um, attitudes where we can just take what we want from it and we don't care about it. So I have, in, I teach environmental ethics too. I do have a, an interest in these matters. Um, I'm a nature lover, but I can't remember what I was going to say. I got focused on the modern world in the ancient world. So there's a lot of different ways we can go about it. One way that I really like is, um, so I study alchemy, as you know, and um, I study especially an alchemist named Zosimos of Panopolis, who was um, third century. That's in, not to interrupt, but that's, uh, that's your first book published, correct? Uh, yes. Becoming Gold? Becoming Gold, yes. Is that available on uh, uh, Amazon or anything? It is available on Amazon and it's published by Rubedo Press. And so you can get it through the website at Rubedo Press. Um, which I believe is rubedopress.com. Very cool. I'll put a link down in the uh, description. Okay, thanks. So Zosimos um, was a temple scribe, so Egyptian. He lived in the Roman period in Egypt and uh, was a, is what I argue in my book, was a, a priestly scribe who was in charge of metallurgists who made divine statues. We can talk more about alchemy um, in a little bit, but what I wanted to talk about was how he talks about the relationship between the physical world and the spiritual world and how he goes about connecting those things. So there's, he's usually, he recommends all kinds of different meditations or sort of patterns of thinking that you can follow, where maybe you start off with popular uh, associations with um lucky and unlucky things. Like uh, he talks about an, an amulet made of electrum, which is a, an amalgam of silver and gold. Okay, it's shiny. Um, amulets were used, uh, made out of electrum uh, to ward off lightning strikes. All right, so he talks about that. And then he moves from a more popular conception of it to electrum is also what mirrors are made of. And you can look in the mirror and see how, how pretty you are and how, you know, how nice you look. Um, and adjust your appearance, but also know thyself. You can look in the mirror that way. So he goes from these like popular associations or more superficial ideas and leads you into deeper um, philosophical ideas. And then the mirror becomes the mirror of the cosmos itself, reflecting the, the whole divine reality to you. And he takes you up kind of this ladder um, from the general, the popular, the superficial into the deepest spiritual teaching. And so um, in connecting, like astro astrology, for example, you can, you can have more superficial understandings of it or uses of it and ways of talking about it. And then there are some really profound uses of it. And so I like how Zosimos kind of, you start here, you know, but keep going, keep going until you reach that higher level or deeper level. The, um, your interest in, in alchemy, you mentioned, 
um, right, the subject of your your first book. Uh, alchemy is one of those things that's neat. It keeps popping up, seems like, um, throughout history. Um, I guess, what is it, uh, um, all I know about it is is the idea of, you know, a desire to turn lead into gold. Um, but I suspect there's much more to it than that. I mean, what was your first, uh, it kind of the same question as before at the start, you know, what is it about alchemy that, um, you know, you find fascinating enough to write, you know, your first book about, and also just a bit about the history of alchemy. Um, and why is it that you think that so many scientists and thinkers were attracted to alchemy? I mean, going up to uh, like Newton, you know, I think famously almost poisoned himself in, in his attempt to, uh, to turn lead into gold. So I got interested, I'll start with the personal. So I got interested in alchemy. I, I've always had an interest in esoteric subjects, right? So but alchemy was hard. It was something that I, I had, you know, maybe looked at in, in my late teens, early 20s, and I found it very difficult to understand. I went to a school in San Francisco for my master's degree called the California Institute of Integral Studies. It's in San Francisco. And they have um, really unique classes. They sort of cater to, they have some esoteric subjects, environmental um, subject philosophies that they teach. Um, anyway, it's a great school, but they had a course on alchemy there. And so I took it um, because I wanted to learn more. It's something that I'd, I'd never been able to understand, but I thought was really cool, especially the artwork. I loved um, looking at alchemical imagery. So in that class, I still, I came out of that class and we studied Jungian approaches, we studied historical approaches to alchemy, and I still didn't have a very good understanding of it, a little bit better than I did before. But um, I came across Zosimosa Panopoulos in that course. And he was, it was this really weird text that we read. It's a famous text by him. Um, it's, it's uh, where he, it's called On Excellence and it's a dream that he has, or he, he's describing it as a dream. And where he sees this priest who begins like gnawing off his flesh <laughs> and then vomiting it back up. And the eye, you know, the face is melting and the eyes are turning bloody. And so I guess Sosimos had me at vomiting priest. <laughs> and that's where I became interested. And when I got to my PhD, I went to Syracuse University for my PhD. Um, the, my first semester there, I took a course on sacrifice. And I remembered the sacrificial imagery for, from the alchemical text that I thought was so interesting and bizarre and grotesque. Um, and I thought that would make a good paper. And then I just realized that nobody's really studying Zosimos um, in any depth. So I thought this would make for a great dissertation and my advisor agreed. And so I took it from there. So I've been studying Zosimos since in depth since 2001, long time now. And um, the, so whether it be um, Zosimos or up to Newton or, you know, all these different scholars throughout history, what is it about alchemy um, that was so attractive to them and, and still is something that, you know, captures the imagination of people, um, you know, even, even in 2021? Sure. So the idea of changing lead into gold was not the original part of alchemy. 
it certainly became that. Um, but there are many different ways that alchemy was practiced, even in the Roman Egyptian context in the city of Panopolis, which is what I've been studying. Um, there were different approaches to alchemy back then. So what is it? What were they doing? This was my big question for my dissertation. And even in my dissertation, I really didn't get a good sense of what it was that they were trying to do. I finally, after many years later of, of reading and thinking about it, and especially exploring the Egyptian religious context of metallurgy and temples, I think I finally understood. So metallurgy was only practiced in the temple because there were precious metals and the, the royal uh, had royal control over precious metals and the temples were where those metals were kept and they were worked on so all the everything was stored there all the equipment all the furnaces were part of temple workshops so it was a, a priests right um, low level priests to higher level priests overseeing them who were working um, on these metals and the most they made all kinds of things, of course, you know, anything metal that you needed, they would make there. Every, everything metal was made there, except for like maybe big iron works. Okay, I'm talking about precious metals, decorative metals. Um, so the most sacred thing, right? You have things that you might make for everyday use, but then you also have religious objects, sacred objects that were made. And so Zosimos, the guy that I study, um, seems to have been writing about statue making and uh, making statues of the gods and sort of the rituals that went into it, the religious thinking that went into um, making something material, metal into a, um, you know, imbued with divine presence and sort of connecting those relationships between matter, you know, rock, <laughs> metal and spirit and how those things go together. So originally, I think that um, it wasn't about changing lead into gold, but gold in Egyptian thought was the, it symbolized the divine. It's a precious metal that doesn't tarnish, it doesn't rust, um, it was valuable. You know, so gold and uh, the sun is like uh, Ray, Ara, it's pronounced, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I'm not sure if there's a correct way, but. Um, Amun-Ra, Amun-Re, the solar god was a preeminent deity. And, and in some cases in Egyptian history, the head deity, right? The core, the, like Zeus in Greece, right? Um, so gold, of course, is, you know, related to the sun and seen as a symbol of the sun. And so this emphasis on gold and gold as the perfection or the summit um, of the work comes from this emphasis on divinity, right? From Egyptian and then, temples. And then so the, the emphasis on, on divinity, um, is, is that kind of what encouraged the original um, alchemists? And then to what extent did, did would you say later generations when they were practicing alchemy or exploring this idea, do you think that that push or desire for divinity remained at its core? Or do you think it was, you know, in some cases like a get rich quick scheme of people just wanting gold? Like what was the, the, the fascination with it um, kind of as it continued uh, uh, through the years and centuries? So what I have 
found <clears throat> is that, so you have this temple context for metallurgy that changes in the Roman period because in the Roman period you start, they have trade guilds now. So not all metallurgy is practiced in the temples but rather in trade guilds. So there's a big economic shift but there's also this religious aspect to metallurgy that's getting diffused and now spread beyond the temple context, right? Um, so as these ideas get out, still Egypt was seen as the cradle of alchemy, all the Egyptian texts, or sorry, all the alchemical texts from the ancient world originate in Egypt, it comes from Egypt. There's something about that temple tradition that was really important. But once the trade guilds come, and that's when we start to see the alchemical texts appear, right? It's probably the only the first time talking about occultism, right? Or secrecy. They weren't allowed to share those recipes. That only happens in the Roman period where you start to see alchemical texts. And I think that's why is because of the new economic context where now they have to do business with trade guilds and it's a, a larger economic network system. But anyway, once Christianity uh, takes over and closes down the Egyptian temples, there's no more temple context. There's no more uh, making divine statues uh, and talking about, you know, becoming gold in this spiritual way. But the recipes mention things like that. And without that context and without those priests, I think once that generation, those generations die out and that knowledge gets, I wouldn't say it gets lost as far as the temple context, but it transforms. It, it takes on different meanings. Um, so becoming, or sorry, making gold um, also has religious connotations when you look at Arabic alchemy and in some European alchemy too later, but you also see some of the religious stuff recede into the background and it becomes more about making, you know, like these secrets for how to make gold. Um, for get rich quick kind of, you know, schemes. That's often how it goes, right? The sacred is only sacred until uh, uh, the economics get involved and then things get a bit more, bit more murky, I think uh, is a pretty common pattern historically. Um, <laughs> but I do, you know, a word that you've used a few times that is a very important word masonically, um, you know, is the word uh, a temple, right? By and large, uh, I'm, I myself have been trying to get away from using the word Masonic temple, uh, except in specific circumstances, I prefer to use the term Masonic building, just because there are many buildings that are Masonic, but not Masonic temples per se. Uh, like the Texas Masonic Retirement Center, for example, right, which is a home for, for retired Masons in Texas type of thing. But Masonic temples are special places. They're places where Masonic lodges are held. From the ancient uh, context, like what would define or be a characteristic of a temple in um, the Greco-Roman time period? Could, you know, anybody just put a sign in front of his house saying this is, you know, the temple of John or what, like what, what made a temple a temple and what did that word mean in an ancient context? Oh, that's a good question. And there would be cultural differences. So um, I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think there's any instance where somebody could just hang a sign outside their house and this would be the temple. There's, these were, you know, there's a priesthood um, and that's a, 
it's a, those positions were hereditary and they came with money. You know, that was a position of privilege to be a priest. And so uh, you would inherit those positions usually from father to son. Although there are certainly priestesses too, um, but these lines were family lines. And um, I wouldn't say the up necessarily the upper crust of society, but you know, not the lower classes either. Um, so not anybody could just come in and build a temple. You had, it was, um, it, you know, there were consecration involved. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. Let me talk more about Egyptian temples. And one of the things in studying them in preparation for this book and things I write about in this book, these temples and the descriptions just blow me away. So all the temples were meant to be like little cosmos, right? So you have represented in the art, which is everywhere. An Egyptian temple is filled floor to ceiling with hieroglyphs, with images, words, um, instructions, songs. <laughs> it's just, it's a text to be read. So you have like at the lower layers of the temple, usually um, representations of like the flora and fauna, the metal world is represented flora and fauna are represented. And then you have like the human world represented and the cosmic world also represented. So all these layers of life and consciousness from floor to ceiling, the temple is meant to be a miniature cosmos with the God inside. Usually a temple had one God. It may have many statues of different gods, but it was dedicated to one particular God who would be the ruler of that particular cosmos, temple cosmos. Um, so yeah, those positions, um, again, were inherited, and they came with privilege, and just people didn't go into the temples. The priests went into the temples and worked with the gods, but the people didn't go in. They would just stay outside and worship. There were also statues outside in courtyards, and this is true even like in the Temple of Solomon. You were mentioning earlier the, the old biblical temple. Right, most of the work was done inside the temple by priests, and there were it was restricted access. People, it's not like a church where you can just go in, right, and, and be sitting there and doing things inside the church. In the ancient world, most of the pu the public was outside, and the inside was reserved for the gods. It was a sacred house for the divine. Does that you think reflect um, comparing kind of the the modern? Um, the modern relationship that people have to churches or places of worship in general um, versus the the ancient relationship and kind of a, a the changing ways in which you know the the idea of what is sacred is defined um, like you said right uh, I can you know many times because I love um, I love architecture, I love old churches, mosques, whatever it is, you know, I can just, you can just walk into a, a church and be taking pictures, right? And obviously you want to be respectful of it, but that's a very different thing than as you were saying in, you know, for example, the Egyptian temples where um, there may be parts that were open to the public, but by and large, uh, like in King Solomon's temple, you know, some of it was open, but there was the, the Sanctus Sanctorum and there were sacred spaces that were only reserved for the priests. Um, I guess, how would the ancient cultures uh, understand the idea of, of, you know, the word sacred and what it means for something to be sacred and, and how to make something sacred? 
Um, and just because the idea of, of sacred is a word that sometimes gets thrown around in Masonic circles, but perhaps more in a modern context, then it seems like sacred was a much more, um, it carried much more weight, the, the idea of it in ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> and I'm not sure I have, um, I have an easy answer for that. But sacred to something sacred is just something set apart. It's something made holy. And it may be something that's ordinary, but through the practice of a certain ritual of purification or uh, consecration, it can be made holy. Sometimes um, things are permanently made permanently holy, right? Um, temples, for example. Other times things are temporarily holy. Um, it's only used for a certain ritual and then maybe it's discarded and, and it's, um, it served its purpose and it throws away or it goes back to being a more profane object, you know, an everyday object that loses its sacred um, meaning. So it's, it manifested in so many ways, like animals could be sacred, you know, maybe a, an animal appeared in a ritual one time, like a chicken was in a, an ISIS ritual. And then that chicken would never be eaten afterwards because it participated in a ritual, you know, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't have the same sacred purpose as it did in the ritual. So there are degrees is what I'm trying to say, uh, sacred. Um, but set aside as something holy, it's something worthy of reverence. It's a, it's a way to connect to the divine. It's, it's a living symbol of the divine. So, um, and that, I think that is the key. And that is something that um, maybe we don't have much of in today's society with like 24 seven uh, smartphones and internet and, 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 computers and everything kind of 24-hour news, it's all coming at you at once. The ability to, to have something set aside, whether it be uh, a place you go or um, could be a place in your own house, but something that you set aside as being uh, a sacred to you and a place where you can kind of separate yourself from the world and uh, meditate or whatever it might be, try to, to find some peace and calm. It seems like that is something that um, is is becoming harder and harder to find in uh, you know 2021 as compared to even just you know 30, 40, 50 years ago, let alone. Um, Absolutely. The idea of the Sabbath, for example, this holy day set aside, you know, whether it's Saturday in the Jewish tradition or Sunday in the Christian. Um, the Sabbath day was a day you're not, you're supposed to rest because that's when God rested. And a lot of businesses were closed, for example, like you said, 30, 40, 50 years ago on the Sabbath uh, for that reason, to honor that sacred time. Time can also be sacred, right? Not just objects, but moments of time. And um, we don't, hardly anything is closed on a Sunday anymore. That's a big business day, right? A big shopping day because people are off work. Um, yeah, so it's harder to find. You have to really carve out time, space uh, with intention. I think that's always true, though. To have something sacred involves intention, um, but it's it takes more effort, perhaps these days. And and that intention, um, the the intention to to create a sacred space and then to maintain that sacred space. Um, Right, that is also something that is is historical thing. Like in 
in you know the ancient world to my understanding you know a sacred place could be a sacred place for for hundreds and you know hundreds of years whereas so often now you look at historical buildings how often they are abandoned or torn down um it's funny i find it that's always been something i found really interesting about the ancient world you know you would think because life was a lot more precarious back then i mean uh, life expectancy was much shorter you had you know far greater amounts of plague and all that type of stuff you'd think that they would have more of a uh, um you know they they would have more of a throwaway type of culture but you know they were thinking about things not just for themselves but you know the next seven eight nine generations down the line and I always just thought that was really interesting that a culture that you know maybe it's because life was so precarious that they paid more attention to the sacred and, and preserving sacred spaces and buildings and connecting with nature in a way that maybe we take for granted because uh, you know we have so many more creature comforts and our, our life expectancies are longer. Just a thought. I don't know if you have any ideas on that. Yeah, no, I think that there's something to that. I mean, our culture is so much more disposable than it was. You know, you built things to last, right? To last through generations and you'd reuse old, I'm talking about even in ancient times, right? You would pass things down, whether it's a profession that was handed down in the family, just to ensure that survival takes place. You would mend, you know, old old uh, clothes or old goods, you wouldn't just, you know, toss things away and buy new ones. I mean, think about just in our lifetimes, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I've been around, I've just turned 51. So I've uh, been around for that long and just how much more we throw things away, how much faster uh, the life cycle of a, of a smartphone, for example, I, you know, you spend $500 or whatever on a phone. And then a few years later, you have to throw it away and buy another one where uh, anyway, it's just getting faster and faster and more disposable, which is a, too a problem. Yeah. And that maybe connects back to what you were talking about earlier. Um, you know, one of these lessons from the ancients is uh, having a bit more reverence or, or respect for, you know, the environment and, and nature. And, you know, a throwaway culture perhaps is one that's not going to be appreciative of, like, whatever is in your smartphone came from somewhere. You know, it came from a mine, it came from, from uh, wherever the materials come from, right? And um, being a little bit more respectful of, of that, uh, of the bricks that go into a building, of whatever it is, might encourage us to be a bit more appreciative of what we have and not, not quite so quick to uh, dispose of these things. Yeah. Um, the this is just uh, my um, my personal interest, but I'm curious if uh, if you have any thoughts on it. Not getting not don't want to get you know political or anything like that. Uh, but I took classics in school, and one of my favorite time periods, and I think it's everybody's favorite time period, at least based on popular culture and what gets made of TV shows and stuff, is uh, you know the the late Republic early Roman Empire type of period, um, starting maybe with like uh, Tiberius Gracchus, I think it was in 120, something around it, going through to Augustus. Um, it just seems like that period is such a fascinating uh, period. And it seems like there might be some lessons from then that maybe are applicable in, in the modern world a little bit. I don't know if you have any thoughts just 
from that period in particular, um, maybe some ideas or things that we could learn from or study from uh, what was happening there um, and how it may be applicable, I suppose, just at any time period, but, but how those, what we see then kind of could be applicable to, to modern life for different time periods. It, that's a hard question for me to answer <clears throat> because I study more religion than I do Roman history. So I'm thinking about, uh, and I focus too mostly on like later, later Roman period, like the end of the Roman period and the beginning of Christianity, sort of that transition of time is where I have spent most of my time thinking. But um, so you're talking about the Pax Romana phase yeah. and that massive expansion. Um, it's interesting. I'm going to, what I'm going to do here is connect it to our discussion of religion and science because astronomy and astrology was used definitely in that time period as a symbol for this, uh, the Pax Romana for this, um, as all of the stars in heaven, so are all of the citizens of the empire. And just as they obey this divine order and never stray from their course, so too, right? With this, this Pax Romana ideal, everybody will follow the will of the emperor who is a godly leader, a divine son, literally, they called him a divine son here on earth um, to guide you. So I think, um, <laughs> well, on, in some aspects, that's a noble idea of having, you know, peace and bringing people together, kind of this universalism we see in there. That's a very uh, generous and positive reading of that. But it, in practice, a lot of people were were uh, harmed. The Pax Romana came down like a hammer, <laughs> you know, on, on many cultures. Um, and again, forced people um, to kind of join, join or die, you know. So it, it cuts both ways. It's, uh, it's just, it's such a fascinating, it's in general, that time period is fascinating. And even the end of the Roman Empire, right? It's such a fascinating time period. I always, I always find, you know, the, the, the end of things to be a really interesting, wherever, whatever the end of British Empire, Roman Empire, like it's such a fascinating, um, uh, it's such a fascinating thing to study. In that time period, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of Christianity, um, what type of, of lessons do you think might be in that time period that people can look to today and try to you know, gain some wisdom or some knowledge from? Um, well, I don't know about wisdom. Sometimes it's more, I don't know. So with Christianity, they, they very much follow the Pax Romana model, trying to unite everybody under this one big banner and um, punishing those who didn't fall in line. So you have the rise of orthodox belief, right? You have... Christianity in its early periods was very diverse. There was no agreement even on like who Jesus was. Was he an angel? Was he uh, uh, just a human prophet? Was he a son of God? All of those ideas were were valid and vying for um, attention, right? They had all of people were believing all of those things. So, and you have the Gnostics and so all these different varieties of Christianity. And then what you see over time as we get toward the close is that um, there's a, an idea that 
orthodox belief, there's an orthodox belief, a, a right way of thinking about Christianity, and that you have to be able to trace it back to apostolic teaching. So it has to have come from a, a lineage that you can trace back to one of the early apostles. Um, and Christians begin, whereas they were a persecuted group early on um, for not falling in line with um, the Pax Romana and refusing to offer sacrifices of incense or you know offerings to the emperor or to to Roma the personification of Rome for peace um, they were arrested and persecuted as you know Christians were they turned around and did that to each other you know you don't fall in line with orthodox teaching then we're gonna exile you you're anathema your teachings are anathema you can't live here anymore you can't be a bishop anymore um, you must leave your homeland so but they got everybody on the same page, you know, and that's where the power comes from. That's where power gets concentrated and they're able to grow and expand in that power way. They, they modeled it on the Roman empire. Do you think that that's a, uh, it, it seems that that's a pattern that's pretty consistent throughout a lot of history. You know, you, you start off with a diverse group a uh, diverse group of people, diverse group of ideas. Um, at certain point, a, a orthodoxy begins to form. Um, I think sometimes it can form, you know, just naturally, but then there's the holdouts and then there's people who have different ideas and then the orthodoxy can start to, you know, enforce, enforce itself with, you know, greater and greater means. And then eventually the orthodoxy uh, it takes over for good or for ill. Um, you know, the Pax Romana brought a lot of wonderful things to the world and a lot of terrible things, depending on who you were and what side of the, the fence you're on. Exactly. But either way, it, it, it comes out and it forms and then eventually it falls down, you know, and then replaced by new orthodoxy. Like it seems like that's a pretty standard pattern that we see repeating, um, not just in ancient times, but, but you know, th through to to modern times um do you think that that's a do you think that that's an inevitability the the creation and enforcement of an orthodoxy or do you think especially in, you know modern times with everybody kind of has access to their own information you know you can use youtube to find whatever whatever orthodoxy you want it seems that um we're living in a really interesting time where maybe we're not able to enforce an orthodoxy the way culturally it was happening in the 1950s even. I was just not even thinking about it. It seems like orthodoxy, which I'm not sure is such a good thing. I worry about that. You know, I worry that without a, a cultural uh, orthodoxy, something that can enforce some type of parameters, you end up with um, a lot of very, in, in, you know, interesting and perhaps dangerous ideas that get a lot of... Uh, I won't say which ones, but they, they can, you know, perhaps we're seeing some with vaccine hesitancy that can uh, uh, take over, you know, like the orthodoxy in the 50s was just get the vaccine. Now um, you don't have the ability to enforce things in the same way. Yeah, it's because like it cuts both ways. Um, I wonder, it, these are very interesting times we live in. 
I tend to be on the side of diversity and a plurality of voices, right? And respecting that diversity. It's why I love early Christianity and I'm always like disappointed when it becomes this orthodox thing and starts to turn on, they start to turn on each other. What I'm wondering is if diversity might become the new orthodoxy, you know? And if, if so, then we need to be very careful with how we move forward um, with it so that it doesn't turn into this controlling um power it's 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 definitely i think you know it definitely it's a very fascinating uh time to but i'm sure everybody thinks that they're living in the most fascinating times i'm sure there are plenty of people in rome and egypt who thought they were living in the most uh uh, fascinating times oh and they were but so are we i mean yeah maybe every generation is true but we've had some pretty pretty big things happen even just in the last year right we have absolutely it's been a very interesting uh couple years for Mm -hmm. sure um but you know knock on wood um we'll all be able to to get back to normal soon vaccination rates go up all that good stuff um i guess that would be uh a good place to to end the podcast with kind of in Roman Egypt, um, in these time periods, you know, we like to think, and, and certainly I like to get into this uh, uh, mindset of, you know, woe is me, and this is the hardest time to, to be alive. But certainly, back then, they were dealing with some very interesting and challenging times, and talked about mortality rates, life expectancy. Um, what was the what was that, you know, Roman Egypt, what was their response to the general rule or their best responses to challenge and to adversity? And how do they deal with things like, uh, you know, death and, and the challenges of life and sickness and all these things that were prevalent in the ancient world um, that was such a part of, of their lives? Uh, were there any lessons in the way that they dealt with these things that you think can be applicable uh, uh, to us here in 2021? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, from what I've seen about how they dealt with death and sickness, they suffered and expressed their suffering and their sorrow, just like, you know, like we would today. They may have had different rituals around it and things, but those feelings of suffering are perennial. You know, humans have always had this. In Buddhist teachings, right? Life is marked by suffering. That's just, the, that's reality. Um, so religion has been a way to sort of make that more palatable, make it better, try to explain, um, you know, whether it's inventing or whether it's really journeying and, and experiencing realms beyond. I'm not going to say one way or the other, you know, people have their own experiences of that, but um and, feel, you know, this idea that you have a blessed afterlife, I think, was really important um, to them that it's even though you're suffering now, things will be OK in the afterlife and do the best you can now. And you'll be rewarded for those efforts in the afterlife. Um, I think that in the uh, in the Egyptian Greco-Roman religions, you see a lot of emphasis on that. I don't know that it's a lesson for us today, though. You know, it's just that's that's kind of how 
they dealt with it? I think certainly, you know, uh, a belief in the, um, you know, a belief that that things will will be better is not a bad belief to to have. I mean, it was, I think Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk said, you know, it's better to be optimistic and wrong than pessimistic and right, which I think is mm-hmm. probably right about. You know, you if if you don't have some type of belief that that um, even if it's a bad situation now, that it will be a good situation down the line, or things will be better, whether it's in the next life or, or just in this life, but that you can carry through it's got to be worth worth something and you know you think if you as you know right when you study history you think about all the the challenges that it was to be alive you know in in that time period compared to now like to they must have had a great deal of strength and perhaps that's where the strength came from is that belief in in better things to come down the line yeah i think there's some of that the the better things about the afterlife, but another aspect now that I think about it is, is fate and being, I'm thinking of the Stoics, accepting one's fate, accepting that things will be worse, things will be better, and to just kind of remain even keeled and, and accepting of, of what happens to you. Um, and that's, that's the best that you can do, right? And, you know, be good and all of that kind of thing too. Um, do your best, but uh, to just kind of accept things as they are. And as they present themselves to you and not get swayed in with the vicissitudes of fate too much, don't let it, don't let it whip you around, you know, maintain your composure through all of it. So that was an important teaching back then too. And that's one, actually, I think we can learn some good lessons from today in times of change, right? I agree. I think stoicism, uh, if there was more stoicism, uh, the world would probably be a much better, better place. Uh, so one more time, uh, your, your first book, Becoming Gold, Zosimos of Panopolis and the Alchemil, Alchemil Arts in Roman Egypt, uh, throw out there one more time and I'll put a description, I'll put a link in the description, but it's available on Amazon and through Rubeo Press. Rubeo Press. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know that, you know, I first got in touch with you because you were, uh, facilitating a public lecture um are you do you have any more lectures coming up i think that one was by it was like a virtual lecture uh, for obvious reasons do you have any more lectures coming up or any more public appearances i am uh what am i doing on the 23rd i'm being interviewed oh it's not a public appearance it's i'm being interviewed for uh, in a spanish woman who does a website on a kind of a literary website so that's coming up i'm Well, I'm giving a public lecture at my college. I'm giving the faculty distinguished lecture there, which was supposed to be an in-person thing that would be taped and probably put on uh, YouTube. But now it might just be a virtual lecture that gets put on YouTube. But anyway, that will be coming out and that will talk more about the history of alchemy. That's all I have in the works for right now. Well, I'm sure that's plenty because, you know, school's coming up again. Uh, um, I know, you know, we tried to this a few months ago, but you were swamped with with school, which is certainly understandable, but I appreciate you taking the time and thank you so much for uh, uh, being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's honestly been a pleasure talking to you. You're very easy to talk to and I really enjoyed it. Thank you.